This morning we're going to be looking at Reuben. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verse 3. <clears throat> Jacob here is close to his death, and he's called all of his sons, and he's giving them their blessing right before he dies. <clears throat> so he kind of has a little summary of each person. Here he summarizes Reuben's life, 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power sounds good so far right he had all this going for him but let's read verse four unstable as water you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it he went up to my couch wow what a description of someone unstable as water one of the definitions of a liquid is something that conforms itself to the shape of its container. So, for a little illustration this morning, I brought some water in a container. And what shape do you think, would we say, you can see the water in there? What shape would we say the water's in right now? Yeah, kind of like a vase, kind of like a bulb at the bottom and not at the top. Okay, so we're going to... The exact uh, flask. There you go. So we're going to pour this into a different situation, as it were. See what the water changes to now. Is it still in a vase-like shape? No. Not even close. It's kind of rounded at the bottom and flat on top. How about we put it in a different situation? Let's see if it can hold its shape now. Even different. It conforms itself to whatever situation it's in. It's not going to stay in one, one position. That's what Reuben's like. It has no, he has no set shape, just like the water, that he can maintain. Rather, he's shaped by his own surroundings. Reuben is, as Jacob said, unstable. He has no firm foundation in himself. So we're going to look at three aspects of instability, and particularly as they're demonstrated in Reuben's life. Number one, he's unreliable. You can't count on him doing the right thing in any given situation. Number two, he's double-minded. He can't or won't just make the right decision and go with it. Number three, he's erratic. You never know just what he's going to do next, and it might be something really way out there. So the first aspect, he's unreliable. Uh, turn, to, please, to chapter 37 and verse 18. And while you're turning there, just refresh your memory. We all know this story. Joseph uh, being sold by his brothers, they... His brothers hate Joseph because he's dad's favorite. And he's been having these dreams where he's going to rule over them and they don't like it. And so finally they're out alone with him in the middle of nowhere. And here's what happens. So 37 verse 18. Now when they, that is his brothers, saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass 
When Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave for my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. What a terrible story. Of course, we know that God meant it for good. But Joseph's brothers cannot take credit for that. As Joseph says, they meant, it, they meant evil against him. <clears throat> now, standing back and looking at the situation, whose responsibility was it to be the head of the brothers? And who was their father relying on to be their leader? Reuben, the oldest. As soon as his brothers had said, let's kill Joseph, he should have asserted himself and said, no, that's wrong. Don't touch him. Maybe could have even escorted him home safely. His father was relying on Reuben doing the right thing. Uh, turn with me, to please, to Proverbs 25, 19. Here, this is one of the wise sayings of Solomon. He says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Think about that. A bad tooth and a foot out of joint. It's a very, very, very good illustration. I have uh, one of the things that I'm not going to forget. Um, when I was still losing, losing my teeth, I remember uh, I was eating something. I was eating uh, some French bread. And I remember when that tooth gave way. It was still loose. And all of a sudden, it just cracked. And I was trying to bite down on it. Oh, man, it felt terrible. It was an experience I don't want to repeat again. It failed when I, was trying to, when I was trying to use it. Or a foot out of joint. It's like, it, it, it looks good. It's still there. I mean, it, it's like a bad tooth is still there. The foot's still there, but it's out of joint. So that when I need it, I need to go to run on it. I fall on it because it's out of joint and it doesn't work. When I need it the most, it fails me. Reuben failed Jacob. Joseph also was relying on Reuben doing the right thing. Later on, the brothers say, we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. You can just imagine Joseph there pleading with the brothers, don't sell me, don't, don't do this to me. And I'm sure he's looking up to big brother Reuben to put an end to all of this. 
nothing happens. Maybe he gets thrown into the pit. Maybe he kind of saw something in Reuben's eyes. Maybe he realizes that Reuben's planning on coming back to get him. He's down there in the pit waiting. And time goes by. The brothers are up there, and Reuben's not there. He was coming back to get me, I thought. He's waiting and waiting. Reuben never shows up. He gets sold. He found out that Reuben's unreliable. Now, why is Reuben unreliable? It's because, like the water, he has no core. He has no strong convictions from the Lord that would shine in a situation like this. Instead, he's unstable as water. Just like the water over there, he adjusts himself to the new situation. He doesn't take the correct stand in the situation. He just lets himself be changed by the situation. Of course, we can apply that to nowadays. How many ways are the other believers in the church relying on us? Think about the duty schedule that we just heard about from Gary this morning. Uh, brothers, we may be doing anything from the emblems to giving the devotional to preaching. And we're being relied upon by the assembly, by the other believers, to fulfill our duties. Sisters, maybe you're leading uh, a Sunday school. Maybe you're doing the nursery. Maybe you're uh, taking care of the food. We're, you're being relied upon to, to help everyone else, to, to do your part. And if, you don't, if you're not reliable, that's going to fall through. But even more important than that is a family. Think about how much a family relies on each other. The wife relies on the husband to be the spiritual leader in the house. What if, what if the husband's not reliable? What if the husband doesn't really um, lead the family properly in spiritual matters and the family's spiritual life goes down the drain? That's his responsibility. What if he's unreliable? Husband's relying on the wife to be a helpmeet and to raise the kids in a godly manner. What if the wife ends up being unreliable, tearing down what her husband's trying to do, uh, going behind his back, doing things, not raising the kids properly? Parents are relying on the kids to be honest, faithful, and obedient. And maybe as a kid, as a kid, we do something behind our parents' back that they don't know about that has consequences. And of course, the kids rely on the parents for everything, for spiritual leadership, for food, for everything. And if the parents don't train up a child in the way they should go, then that child is going to be uh, have a terrible life. Who knows what's going to happen to them? But that could happen. There's a very good chance of that happening if this person doesn't have strong convictions. If there's no reason, well, why should I be the spiritual leader in the house? I mean, okay. But if you actually look at the Word of God and find out that the husband is supposed to be the spiritual leader in the house, and you take that and say, I have a conviction about this, and you act on that, that's what's going to happen in the situation. So if the person has no solid convictions, you can't be relied upon to follow through with what they've been entrusted with. Another aspect of instability is double-mindedness. Please turn now with me to James 1.8. I know we're turning all over the Bible this morning. <clears throat> James links these two terms, instability and double-mindedness. And he's talking about a man who's praying to God for something but doubting. He says in verse 8, this man is, quote, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Think about that term. Double-minded. It's almost as good as unstable as water. Double-minded. It's like this guy has two brains. And this one brain says, you know what? You need to do this. So the guy starts to do it. And the other brain says, well, wait a minute. Don't do that. I want you to do this. And so he says, okay. And well, no. This brain says, do that. Do that. And the guy is, what do I do? I don't know what to do. You get the idea. He can't decide what to do. In this verse, the individual, this brain saying, trust God. And he's saying, okay, Lord, I want. And then the other brain says, you know what? You can't trust God. I mean, and what am I going to do? He can't decide what to do. What does God say about this guy in verse 7? Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Notice also in the verse that he's unstable in all his ways. It's not just in the area of prayer that he's uh, double-minded. It's pervasive throughout his life. This person has, again, no solid footing in himself because he never worked out solid convictions from the word of God. If he had, he wouldn't be double-minded. He might, he, he might have to, he might kind of have that experience, but as soon as this mind started to say, you can't trust God, he'd say, no. I know from the word of God what's true. I know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know that if God has promised something, he's going to do it. I know that I can trust him. Instead of that, if you're double-minded, you get these two conflicting opinions that aren't going to get you anywhere. Now, this is common in new believers because they haven't worked out convictions from themselves. It shouldn't be common in older believers, but unfortunately, sometimes that can be the case. This person is easily swayed by what other people say because he doesn't have any solid convictions. I talk to, I talk to someone over here and I say, well, what do you think about this? And this person gives me a good idea. And then I talk to Michael and I say, Michael, what do you think about this? And Michael says something else. And I think, oh man, maybe that's right. It's often said about this person that if you want to find out what their convictions are, you find out who they talked to last. Now, deep down inside, the double-minded man does know what's right. Because God's always very clear. The main problem is not, not a knowledge of what to do. The main problem is simply an unwillingness to step out in faith and to trust God. Fear can be a big factor in this. If I do this, if I do what God says, God says that... Just think of any of the commands that are less pleasant. Maybe I need to confess a sin that I've committed against someone else. I need to go and apologize. But that person's going to get upset at me. Maybe I'm going to lose face. I don't want that to happen. I can just kind of not do anything. They're afraid of what's going to happen. Again, it's an unwillingness to say, I know what God wants me to do, and I'll do it, even though it might hurt me. The end result, then, of a person who can't commit himself to one path or the other is someone like Reuben. Back in Genesis, remember the situation. The brothers say, let's kill Joseph. Reuben, being the double-minded person that he is, has lots of ideas all of a sudden running through his head, plus the right one. The right one will be to save Joseph, but it's mixed in there with all the others. He thinks, wait a minute, they're going to kill Joseph, that's wrong. But if I say something, they might hurt me too. No, I'm the big brother. I can't let poor Joseph get killed. I don't want to get killed myself. Maybe I'll tell them to stop. Well, maybe I won't do anything. Maybe I'll let them beat him up a little and then I'll take him home. No, I'll rescue him and kill as many of them as necessary. No, no, that's foolish. So what does he end up doing? He says, let's throw him in a pit. 
Wow, that's a great idea, Reuben. Throw him into a pit. That solved all our problems. No, it hasn't. Joseph's just in as bad trouble as he was. You know what the pit really does? It gives Reuben time to think. He needs more time to decide because he hasn't, he hasn't figured out yet what to do. So he throws, he says, put Joseph in the pit and now I can think some more. What am I going to do? And of course he does know what's right. What should he do? He should assert himself and say, no, don't do that to Joseph. It might hurt. It, they might, he might get hurt. They might end up killing him, but that's fine. That's his responsibility. But he's still got to think about it. Reuben was unable to commit himself to doing the right thing. And so he ended up not really helping his brother at all. So Joseph's in the pit. And as we know from the Bible, Reuben planned to get him out later. But unfortunately, he has to wait for the other brothers to go. He's not going to throw him into the pit and then haul him right back out. So Joseph's down there and maybe Reuben, we know Reuben kind of disappears halfway through. So maybe Reuben kind of goes off and hides behind a bush waiting for them to go. So the brothers, unfortunately, what do they do? They get out their lunch and they start eating. They're sitting there, you know, eating away, and you can just see Reuben behind the bush. You know, come on, let's go, I'm waiting. You know, the brother's over there eating lunch with Joseph down in the pit. And, yeah, he can still do the right thing. He, he's, he's, he can still go in and say, we need to return Joseph, but he's kind of committed himself at this point to doing the wrong thing. Now, Reuben eventually goes away. We know that he's completely gone. And who has any, I mean, who has any idea why he was going at that point? He had something else on his mind. Maybe he was going to try something else. As a result... He's not even there when Joseph, the one he should have protected his soul as a slave. He couldn't decide what to do, but time kept going while he was thinking. And the situation resolved itself without him doing what he should have. Now, it's not hard for that to allow us to happen, that to happen to us today either. You can imagine a believer in a bad relationship. Now, the elders tell that believer, you know what, you need to break that off. That, that's not good. Now, what's the principle here? What's the spiritual principle? Hebrews, think about that. Obey those who rule over you for they, and be submissive to them for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So, there's the spiritual principle. God has spoken. You need to obey the elders. You need to break off the relationship. But the believer can't just come down and say, you know what, I'll do the right thing. Instead, if you were to ask them, you, you come to them maybe the next week and you say, well, what's going on? Are you, are you going to take care of that relationship? And he says, well... I'm thinking about it. Situation isn't stagnant, though. And just like Joseph getting sold, things may happen in that relationship. As you can imagine, that while the believer is being double-minded, they can change the situation forever. And the believer can then no longer do what he should have done in the first place. The final uh, character trait, as it were, of instability is... Being erratic. Reuben is very erratic. Uh, Amy at the table the day before yesterday said, what's erratic? It's unpredictable. You don't know what he's going to do. He'll say and do some really, really, really weird things. Things that are way out there. You know why? Again, because he doesn't have a solid core to prevent himself from doing them. Uh, all the way back to Genesis, chapter 35, verse 22. Just in the middle of a more of a just an account of things that are happening nothing special is happening we come across this verse 35:22 and it happened when israel dwelt in that land that reuben went and lay with bilhah his father's concubine and israel heard about it 
That's a major, major sin. We're, we're not talking something small. He's not, he's not deceiving his parents. He's not talking back. Sleeping with his father's concubine? But he had no convictions that would prevent him from doing something like that. I mean, what's, what's so wrong about that as opposed to doing something else? He's erratic. Uh, look at now uh, chapter 42, verses 36 and 37. Um, Joseph now, we're, we're jumping quite a bit ahead in, ahead in history. Joseph is now the ruler in Egypt, as you'll remember. And uh, the rest of his brothers are coming to get grain because they're, they're starving. There's a famine in the land. And Joseph has imprisoned uh, Simeon. Uh, yeah, Simeon. Joseph has imprisoned Simeon and says, look, I'm going to keep Simeon here. You guys go back, and I want you to bring Benjamin back with you. And then I'll let Simeon go. So they kind of have to go back and bring, to get Benjamin to get more grain and to get Simeon out. So they have to, unfortunately, though, Benjamin is kind of taking the place of Joseph in his father's heart. Benjamin is very, very dear to Jacob. And they have to convince Jacob to let him go. So look at verse 36. They asked him, and Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Okay, if Benjamin doesn't come back, Jacob can kill his two grandkids. That's great. Thanks. That's an excellent idea, Reuben. Yeah, it's worthless. That is completely, it's a dumb idea. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's a very, again, it's erratic. It's way out there. It's a suggestion that has no basis in reality. It's, it's, it's pointless. He, he doesn't have a good head on his shoulders. He can't seem to think straight. Application. This, is, this scared me more than anything else that I was preparing. If I don't have strong convictions, I'm capable of anything. Any sin in the Bible. There's nothing to prevent me if I don't have a conviction against it. What's to prevent you from doing it? If you don't have a conviction that a relationship, a physical relationship outside of marriage is wrong, what if you've never really, really worked that out in your mind? Maybe you really don't feel that that's that wrong. Maybe it, you, you've listened to what the world has to say. And then you get in a situation where something like that offers itself to you. No conviction against it. You could ruin your life. What if you've never really thought that killing someone is that wrong? Now, you're not, you're not going to go out and kill someone. You, but but you, it's just never really been that something that you've really felt strongly about. You don't have a conviction about it. You don't really believe that what God said is that true. You believe that if someone really does something bad to you, then you can take vengeance on them. And then all of a sudden a situation arises and in the heat of the moment you have no conviction to prevent you and you kill someone. Think about Reuben. Jacob mentions, as we read in, G- in, his ble- in Jacob's blessing of Reuben, Jacob mentions that Reuben slept with Bilhah. Jacob mentions that when he's dying. This way out there, so who knows how old Reuben was. Early in Reuben's life has followed him all the way to Jacob's death. We could ruin our testimonies and our lives and the lives of others by some crazy act like this. As always, what's the solution? Strong convictions from the Word of God. 
So Reuben was unstable. He was unreliable. He was double-minded. And he was erratic. Now let's look at the consequences of his actions. First, let's look at the consequences to his brothers. Early on, when Joseph comes and they say, let's kill him, Reuben doesn't stop them. He doesn't give them a role model. He's, he's the oldest. He should have been their role model. Instead, he joins in with their sin effectively because he doesn't do anything to stop them. Turn also to, uh, you're close to it, 42, uh, verse 21. This is just a little bit before what we just read. Um, Jacob's brothers, are, it looks like they're actually beginning to see their sin. They're really feeling guilty. And they say, uh, verse 21, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And that's right. And Reuben answered them, saying, Didn't I speak to you, saying, Don't sin against the boy, and you wouldn't listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Told you so. Boy, big help. He's, he's only feeling the consequences of the sin. He could have, even at this point, he could have said, You know what? I've been feeling bad about this too. You know, we're right. We need to go back and tell our dad what happened. We need to confess it. I don't think we can do anything about it, but we can at least make right what we can. All he says is, I told you so. His brothers don't even get help there. How about the consequences of Reuben's actions to Joseph? Well, there's the most obvious one. He allows Joseph to be betrayed by his brothers and sold as a slave. Because of Reuben's actions, Joseph loses 15 or 20 years of his life that should have been spent at home with a loving father and mother. Instead of that, he's a slave. He's in a dungeon a lot of the time. He's forgotten by everybody else. It looks like he's going to stay there forever. And that's all Reuben's fault. Reuben should have stopped it. How about the consequences of his actions to Bilhah, his father's concubine? She's marked for life because of the rash act that she and Reuben participated in. Now, as far as we know, she's still Jacob's wife. But she knows what Jacob's thinking every time he looks at her. She knows that he's never going to be able to forget that. How about the consequences of Reuben's actions to his father? Well, Jacob loses his favorite son. He thinks he suffered a terrible death. How badly is he hurt? Listen to this. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son's son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. He then lives with this for 15 or 20 years. And it still hurts long after the act. Remember when they asked for Benjamin? He says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. He still remembers that Joseph is dead all this long time since. And then the incident with Bilhah, how that hurt Jacob? Well, it happened early in Reuben's life, but his dad still hasn't forgotten about it when he's dying, as we saw. Look at 49, verse 4, just one more time. It's interesting the way that Jacob says this. 
First, he talks about this incident with Bilhah. He talks about it in its right light and looks at it objectively, kind of like in a court of law. He looks at it in the third person. He says, you went up to your father's bed. But then he says it again. He repeats it in a personal way to everybody else. He says, he went up to my couch, my couch. It's not your father's bed. It's my couch. It still hurts. It still bothers me, even after all these years. And then, worst of all, what are the consequences of Reuben's actions to himself? Think about all that he had going for him. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency, excellence of dignity and the excellence of power. He was the firstborn. Think about all the privileges that he had. He had a double inheritance. He had the respect. Very possibly would have had uh, Messiah coming from his line. He was the noble one. But instead, of his, instead, because of his actions, his birthright is given to Joseph's two sons. And the promise of the Messiah is given to Judah's line, not to Reuben's. His father says he's the excellence of dignity. He should have been. By his actions, he lost the good name that he should have had. Again, particularly as the oldest. What kind of dignity can you have? When your father says, you know what, he slept with my wife, and he says that in front of everybody else. His relationship with his dad is shattered. Instead of a blessing, he gets a curse when his father's dying. That would be the time of all times. Dad, you're dying. Could you at least say something nice to me? No, he gets a curse. Apparently, he never made his sin right with his father because even at Jacob's death, there's no forgiveness for Reuben. Overall, his life is wasted. He's never recorded doing anything good of lasting import. So how can we apply this? Well, you've got solid convictions based on the word of God and act on them. Going back to the illustration. Instead of water, what shapes the rock? It's round, isn't it? It kind of moves around in there. Is it any different? Still the same. My mom warned me that I might break these if I put the rock in them, but that's what happens. Think about it. If you have strong enough convictions, you can change the situations. Think about Daniel. He had a very minor conviction, remember? It was a very strong one to him, but it was very minor. He said, you know what? When when they first took him to uh, the court of the king, he said, I don't want to eat meat. I don't want to eat the king's delicacies, and I don't want to drink his wine. God honored it. Remember, the Israelites turned out healthier than everybody else. And then he had a more serious conviction. King's advisors say, you know what? King, you're such a great guy. We want to make a law for a month. Nobody can pray to anybody but you. And Daniel says, well, you know what? I know what God says. I know that I should be praying to God. And I'm sorry. I don't care if I get in trouble. I don't care if I die. This is my conviction. I need to pray. And so he prayed. Well, they found out about it, and they threw him into the lion's cage. But what happened again? God honored those convictions. He kept him alive in the lion's den. Daniel had strong convictions based upon God's word. 
And of course, let's not forget the Lord Jesus, who's exact opposite of Reuben. He's not unstable. Is, uh, Paul says, and is, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Revelation, he's called the faithful and true. We're asked, has he said it, and will he not also do it? The Lord Jesus is reliable. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Reuben. Lord, thank you that you've recorded someone who had no convictions so we can see what their life is like. Lord, it seems like such a minor thing at times, Lord, that, but we see how important it is to have these strong convictions, Lord. Lord, help each of us to have strong convictions based upon what you say, not to be easily swayed by different circumstances, Lord. Help us to be like Daniel, Lord, and help us to look up to you, Lord, as our model, Lord, as the one who is, who says what he will do and does it, Lord. We worship you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the example, and we pray that you would help each of us, Lord, to be stable in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.